This is Chapter 72 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Cherenkovich. This week, we talk politics with author and Pod Save America host Dan Pfeiffer. We tour New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art with MJ Rose, and we'll hear the strange but very true story of a Coney Island sideshow that saved thousands of American babies. If you're looking for a juicy tell-all about what it was like to work under President Obama, Dan Pfeiffer's new book isn't it? The former Obama White House communications director and current host of the Pod Save America podcast says his book, Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter and Trump, is more of a future roadmap for Democrats. And he tells our Steve Scott why the time is right for this particular book. Well, you know, when I left the White House uh, three years ago, you know, I thought about writing a book as many White House aides do. And at the time, I couldn't really figure out what story I wanted to tell, what contribution I could make to sort of the overall story of the Obama era in politics. And it wasn't until Hillary Clinton lost and Trump won that I saw a, a story that I thought was worth telling, worth telling because it was interesting for the history books, I hope, but also because it can hopefully extract some lessons for Democrats going for the battles to come. And so I looked at the forces that help elect Trump, changes in media, changes in the Republican Party, changes in, uh, you know, sort of the growth of fake news and and conspiracy theories. Looked at how Barack Obama battled those forces, looked at our successes and our failures and tried to try to look for lessons. And what I came out of that, out of that, you know, sort of out of that experience was that there, despite what can feel like very dark times for Democrats and progressives, that there are reasons for hope going forward if we do the hard work of politics. Now, this is not some sort of tell-all book, right? No, 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 no. I'm very clear about that. This is, uh, I have no access to grind, no scores to settle. Uh, I remain uh, incredibly loyal to my colleagues and my boss, which is a, it may seem like uh, a departure from the way things are currently operating in the White House. And so this is, you know, if you are looking for gossipy scoops, I don't have them. If you're looking for a, inside take of what politics is like in uh, over this sort of crazy decade we've been in. This, this is the book for you. If you're interested in learning a little more about uh, Barack Obama, the person, what kind of president he was, what kind of boss and leader he was, that's also in this book. But my, I am an Obama loyalist. My cards are on the table. My biases are apparent for everyone who knows me from Twitter or Ponte's America. Let's talk about life in the Obama White House compared to today. You mentioned in the book that President Obama's White House was relatively free of leaks. That doesn't seem to be the case in the Trump White House. Why do you suppose that is? Is it a loyalty thing at some level? Yeah, it is. Ultimately, leaks, particularly the sort of gossipy leaks about who's up, who's down, uh, who's getting fired, who's not getting fired, who's getting layered. Those are really leaks of vanity where individuals decide to put themselves above the boss in the enterprise. And Barack Obama was loyal to us. We were loyal to him. We were loyal to each other. So that's, I mean, not that we were perfect, but that was not something we were engaged in. I wasn't sitting there worried that my colleagues were calling up Axios or the Washington Post and trashing me on background, right? And they are clearly worried about that. So they are sort of in this sort of standoff situation where they trust no one, uh, fear everyone. And it's a very, it's just, there's a toxic culture there. We had a very good culture. I spent some time in the book talking about 
how Barack Obama built that culture for us. And, uh, and I think that that's a fundamental difference. We, I, we liked our boss. We liked each other. And we liked ourselves. So three things which don't seem to be true of most people who work in the Trump White House. I want to talk about your experiences as White House communications director and advising the president. You dealt directly with journalists. What do you make of President Trump's use of the words fake mm-hmm. news? Well, I think that we... Fake news has, you know, I, I sort of break this down. The book, but fake news has two sort of meanings. There is actual fake news, which is something that happened in 2016, where either Russians or right-wing conspiracy theorists put out objectively false news to try to, sh- to sway an election. The idea that Barack Obama wasn't born in America, the idea that the Pope endorsed Trump or that hi- ISIS wanted Hillary, these are all stories that have had currency in Republican Party politics in the last few years. Then there is what Trump does, which is yell fake news at everything that they don't like. And that is a very dangerous thing when you step back and look at the at the actual, you know, sort of ultimate meta goal here, which is to nullify the idea of objective truth, right? Trump yells fake news about things that are – and tries to signal to his supporters that they cannot trust this information. He even said this in a speech recently where don't believe what you see and hear, which is I think pretty close to something directly out of 1984, the book, not the year. Um, and that is very dangerous for – not for just for Democrats, you know, something I'm scared about, but for democracy more largely when you're trying to convince uh, half of voters or uh, that – they shouldn't believe things. They should ignore objective truth and just listen to propaganda. And that's that's his goal. And that is that is dangerous uh, on a whole host of levels. It appears to me that that for many those who support President Trump, if they see something reported with which they disagree or they don't like it, they consider it fake news. Doesn't that put us down a slippery slope? Oh, we are in a. Da- I, I think we are in a very dangerous place. You know, the hopeful nature of my book aside, I think we are in a very dangerous place with a portion of the population. Now, we should have some perspective that we're talking about a, you know, a third of or so of voters, which is a you know, with most Americans not voting, that you know, you're looking at fifteen, seventeen, eighteen, twenty percent of Americans, but still, this idea that. You can believe nothing other than the things that Fox News, Donald Trump, or Breitbart tell you is very scary because then we can't really – it makes it very hard to govern, right? If you can't – a healthy debate is one where you agree on the set of facts, the obvious facts, then you debate the solutions, right? So there's no better example of this than climate change. Climate change is a proven – man-made climate change is a proven fact. And if Republicans and Democrats could agree on that proven fact, then we could have a debate about whether we do the Democratic proposal, the Republican proposal, or even no proposal, right? If the argument, you could make an argument, I would think that would be stupid, but you could make one about that it's not, there is no solution to be had. But like you have to have it in the confines of the debate that climate change is real. When we're having a debate about whether it's real, as opposed to what we do about the fact that it's real, then you can't, you can't make progress on issues big or small. And it is, I think it is, Donald Trump, it's a carnival barker, he's been a carnival barker his whole life, uh, he doesn't care about much other than himself. What I think is disappointing is that the entire Republican Party establishment has gone along with this strategy, and they've done it for short-term political gain, but it has really long-term consequences for the country and the party. You titled Chapter 6, Fox and Friends is Destroying America. That is a pretty strong statement. Yeah, I agree. And I mean Fox and Friends, the show, and I mean Fox Net, the 
the news, the Fox Network, uh, Fox News Network, and then the sort of and their and their cohorts in this massive right wing propaganda operation, whether that is Sinclair or uh, Breitbart or the Daily Caller or whatever else. And I think we have to understand, and this is a, some, a lesson we learned, and I tell some of the stories and how we learned it over the course of my time working for Barack Obama, is that Fox News is not the conservative version of MSNBC or the conservative version of CNN. It is a propaganda organization started by a Republican political consultant designed to push conservative messaging and help Republicans win office. And it, and it, in the course of the Obama administration, they found partisan and gain and profit, frankly, in pushing this idea that that sort of sowing racial division because we had a black president. And these, you know, you can find innumerable times where they said racist things about President Obama or where Glenn Beck said that Barack Obama hated white people or they referred to Michelle Obama as Barack Obama's baby mama or the time the Obamas fist bumped each other at the convention. They said that was, quote, a terrorist fist jab. And that has real when you divide people when you make a specific political effort to divide people along racial lines, that is very damaging to the country. It has radicalized the Republican Party. It has created a filter bubble that is Fox is responsible for what you just raised about uh, many of Trump's supporters not believing anything, not not sort of not believing the facts before them or thinking everything that they don't like is fake. That is all a result of Fox. And we have to grapple with that as a country. And we have to grapple with that as a Democratic Party about how we're going to survive in a world where Fox and its quote-unquote friends has, has this influence on the, on the political conversation in this country. Dan Pfeiffer, the fraternity of White House communications directors and press secretaries is, is pretty small. Not a lot of people have had that job. I wonder, as you watch Sarah Sanders, do you have any empathy or even perhaps sympathy for her? Zero. I have none. She made a choice to lie for a liar. That is a choice she made. It's anyone who, you know, if she had been dropped down, you know, she'd been in a, uh, you know, in a Rumpelstiltskin style, uh, deep sleep for, for the last two years and woke up and then found herself as White House press secretary. Maybe she could be surprised by what is happening. But from the very beginning, we've known Trump's a liar. She has been willing to be party of those lies. And and she, this is a black mark that I think will follow her for the rest of the time, I hope. It is a, she has a choice. This is not, she decides every day to go in and support Trump's lies and the lie to the American people on his behalf. And I think she will be held in great contempt uh, for a long time because of that. Can we talk a little about Twitter? Let me find it here. Page 213. Yes, let's do you it. Ref- you refer to Twitter. As the funhouse mirror of politics, what do you mean by that? Well, I think um, there are several. Twitter, as I talk about in the book, has has good aspects and bad aspects. I myself am a uh, Twitter addict. While I'm on the phone with you today, will probably be the longest time, longest waking period of time I go today without checking Twitter. Um, and but what it does is it emphasizes all. It emphasizes essentially a lot of the wrong things, right? Because Twitter is where the political conversation happens. It's where the politicians are. It's where Donald Trump is, most notably. It's where all the political reporters are, uh, you know, dishing out their scoops, reporting, um, offering their analysis. And what it does, Twitter offers, creates an incentive structure for all the wrong things, right? Because what 
what everyone seeks on Twitter, whether you're a politician or reporter, is engagement, retweets, shares. And the things that get that are outrage. And that's something that Donald Trump understood from the beginning. So it takes all the worst things and makes them seem worse. And this is not to say that there aren't good aspects. You know, I think, you know, I think it's the the Twitter can be used as a Twitter it democratizes sort of distribution of information. You know, we know about things that are happening in parts of the world where no reporters can go because there are people with phones and Twitter accounts there to tell us what's happening. You know, particularly in Syria, you know, in the Middle East during uh, some of the uh, pro-democracy uprisings uh, earlier this decade. And it also can be an organizing tool. The success that the kids from uh, Parkland, Florida had in organizing the March for Our Lives and a lot of their efforts uh, to fight for, you know, gun safety legislation was available to them because they had phones. You know, it lowers the cost of entry into the act, the marketplace of political activism. But it, as a representation of our politics, it, it, it offers a really bad picture. It can, be, it can just, you know, lead to, cynicism, lead to cynicism and dissuade some folks from getting involved in the process because it seems so terrible. I wonder if the media should stop reporting every tweet the president posts. I mean, you know, CNN, if you look up at CNN, there's the latest tweet. Here on the radio, we read verbatim tweets that the president posts. Should we stop doing that? But on the other hand, it's really the main way he communicates. So what do we do? Yeah. I, you know, this is a really interesting debate. And I'm, I'm kind of torn on this because a, a tweet is a presidential statement in another form, right? If the, if the White House released a piece of paper that said, like, for example, let's take Trump's tweet this morning calling on Jeff Sessions to fire Bob Mueller. Now, we know that Trump tends to tweet a lot and follow, you know, make proclamations and follow and with little follow through. Right. But if the if the White House put out a statement like on letterhead that they released or that Sarah Huckabee Sanders read to the press corps at her at her, her infrequent and very short briefings, she that said, President Donald Trump today calls on Attorney General Jeff Sessions to fire Bob Mueller because his investigation is a disgrace to the country. That is news. Now, I think what the, the key part of this, and I think a lot of organizations, and I, I'm a contributor to CNN, so I'm you know, putting my biases out there, I think I've gotten better at this, which is to try, you have to report on them, but put them in context, right? Which is, you know, he, you know, he has called on this many times and never done anything, or Trump said, you know, Trump said the following thing, these three things are not true, or these three things are contradicted by the thing he said yesterday or whatever else. So I think so much, like the big challenge, whether it's your reporting on Sarah Huckabee Sanders' briefings, statements from White House aides, or Donald Trump's tweets is, these people are very frequently dishonest. And so you have to, simply reporting what they're saying without putting in context or fact checks, I think that's a disservice to the listener. If they just hear Donald Trump said this without saying Donald Trump said he never called for this, but in a tweet on October 12th, he did call for it or whatever the situation is. So I think it makes it like, look, this is a, like we are in a world of very tough calls for reporters and I'm sympathetic to that. And I think everyone, you know, myself included is learning the new rules of the game as, as we pro- progressed with a, uh, with a very uh, unconventional, if you will, administration in power. Yeah, you mentioned CNN that uh, to which you contribute. It's a 24-7 operation. My radio station, all news, 24-7. There's 
you have to feed the beast with something. And so you see this tweet come down, even though if it's, yeah. a, it's a tweet that is filled with misspellings or makes you roll your eyes, somehow it gets on the radio or television, even though perhaps it's, it's not necessarily, quote unquote, N-E-W-S news. Yeah, it's a, it's a, like, it's a, like, what is, you know, quote, like, there, there is a broader existential discussion because, you know, CNN's been 24 hours for decades, you know, radio, news radio's been 24 hours for, for longer than that. But now the entire news cycle is 24 hours because these reporters are reporting all day, tweeting all day. The New York Times is updating its stories all day. Uh, you know, you know, network news reporters are, you know, updating stories all day and tweeting and reporting all day. And so we are in the sort of world of this in like sort of there's, there's an insatiable appetite for content and Donald Trump's providing content and how and the individual calls that people make about what qualifies as news is a really those are tough questions are going to be different for every entity. There are sort of the gossipy scoops that some of the inside the beltway publications like Axios uh, report all the time that may be different than what you or, you know, what your organization or your station feels as news. And I think it's a really this is a really discuss, important discussion. And I think one of the things I talk about in the book is how the definition of media has changed fundamentally. And it used to mean very specific things. And now it is a very broad definition that includes everything from Breitbart to, you know, tweeters with blue check marks to traditional organizations like yours and CNN to, you know, partisan podcasts like my own. And so when we sort of rail against the media, you know, this is the lessons I've learned. It's important to be more specific about who you're talking about because, Individual organizations can be doing a great job, even if you think the overall coverage, you know, the you know, broadly defined of politics is lacking. I want to ask you a couple of philosophical questions as, as we head down the stretch here, starting, sure. starting with where is our country right now, Dan? Are we in a historical aberration or is this the new normal and people who don't like it need to just buck up and get used to it? I think, you know. You asked me about the title of my book, which is inherently hopeful, um, but I refer to it as conditional hope, meaning I think we can get out of this mess and make it so that the Trump era is a very disturbing uh, aberration in our politics on the path towards a politics that is more hopeful, inclusive, unifying, and thoughtful, but like the politics that I believe Barack Obama represented. But that is a, but that is not a guarantee. Purpose of this book and the purpose of uh, Pot Save America and everything else I do is not to tell you it's going to be okay. I'm not doing that. What I am saying is it can be okay. We have all the tools to make this an aberration, but we have to do the hard work of organizing, registering people to vote, having people run for office, and frankly, turning out. And if we do that, we can make this an aberration starting with these elections in 90 some days from now and then following it up in 2020. But it's not a guarantee. It is absolutely not a guarantee. In 2016, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. She carried the big metropolitan areas. But Donald Trump, of course, won the Electoral College with that big red swath across the country. Will history show really that Hillary Clinton blew it with her campaign strategy? Should she have done a better job of going to some of those states that went the other way? Oh, of course. Look, of, co- of course, there were that it was not a perfect campaign and she was not a perfect candidate. It's a, the Democratic problem is bigger than just Hillary Clinton because we also lost up and down the ballot, even in play and Hillary lost in some of the places she campaigned in a lot, like Pennsylvania. I think in a this is one of the hard parts about doing an autopsy of twenty sixteen is in a race where that was decided by where Hillary Clinton got millions of more votes, uh, 
but the race was decided by 80,000 votes dispersed over three states. You can look at lots of, like everything and nothing are the tipping point, right? Was it the Russian hacking? It absolutely had an effect. Was Jim Comey's decision to release that letter in the waning days of the campaign that re-rate, that incorrectly and unfairly re-raised the email issue? There's a lot, you know, you can look at the polling and show that that's when the dip began. You can look at campaign decisions. You can, you know, there are all kinds of things. And like we up in Democrats, we did not understand what we were facing. We were overly confident and complacent. We made mistakes. I include myself in that. Uh, and we have to learn the lessons from it um, and apply them going forward because we, uh, frankly, as a country and a party, can't afford to make those mistakes again. I want to wrap it up with a question about your former boss and then one about the current occupant of the White House. First of all, Barack Obama has been pretty sure. quiet since he left office, as ex-presidents often are. But there are some who say, gosh darn it, we wish he would stand up, speak up, say something. President Trump's trying to undo much of what President Obama did. Should Mr. Obama be more vocal right now? I, look, I think it's important for Democrats to recognize, and I and I talk about this in the book, that Barack Obama is not the solution to our problems. He can't be. He spent eight years battling uh, this terrible Republican Party, putting in place historic uh, accomplishments. Uh, Trump has tried to undo many of them, and, but most of them still stand to this day. And he will... And we, it is incumbent upon all of us, the, new, the leaders of the party, the next generation, to go forward, because he's never going to be on the ballot again. Right. We did incredibly well in 2008, 2012, when Barack Obama was on the ballot. We did very poorly in 2010, 2014, 2016, when he wasn't. And so we got to figure this out because he's not running again. Now, having said all of that, I think he will. Uh, he will be out there campaigning for Democrats this fall, as he was in 2017, campaigning in Virginia and New Jersey in the gubernatorial races there, as he was in doing uh, – emails and robocalls to help Doug Jones in Alabama. So I think he will be out there where he can have the most impact, which is encouraging his voters to, uh, to the voters who supported him, even some of them who switched for Trump, and encouraging people who didn't vote before to get involved in our politics and, to raise, and raise the stakes. And so you'll, you will see him out there. But if, the, if, if, the, if you go to a whiteboard in some Democratic Party office or political consultant's office and it says, solution to our problems, Barack Obama, we're making a huge mistake. We have, we have work to do in the, to get the party ready for the post-Obama era. And I'll end it with a question about President Trump. Some Democrats say Donald Trump should be impeached. They say his re-election certainly could never happen in 2020. There's no way he could win again. Do you buy into either one of those, impeachment and or Trump defeat in 2020 as a foregone conclusion? Uh, I believe that Donald Trump has most likely committed many crimes and many impeachable offenses. I think Democrats, when they have the majority, should, and what we don't know, we don't know what Bob Mueller knows, and we don't know what, and we don't know, and Congress has, Republicans in Congress have just surrendered any constitutional obligation of, to oversee executive branch. So if Democrats get the majority, we should investigate everything. We should investigate collusion. We should investigate the rampant corruption throughout the Trump administration. We should investigate how Trump and his family have been enriching themselves at taxpayer dime. And then if we find uh, abuses of power and, and impeachable offenses, then we'll see where we go from there. I think it, the actual removal of Trump from office via impeachment is going to be impossible because I don't foresee a world where 
you can get two. You, if you get every Democrat in the Senate, let's say we take control of the Senate, you get every Democrat in the Senate, you still need about half of Republicans to convict Trump. And I see that impossible to imagine because they have basically supplicated themselves to Trump entirely. Now, in Trump's reelection, Trump is very beatable. He's absolutely beatable as of right now. His numbers are not great. He needed everything to go his way to win. Uh, you can. There's real arguments to be made. You know, if if just some of those third party voters, either for Jill Stein or Gary Johnson in these Midwestern states that Trump won, vote for a Democrat, it's over for him. But Democrats should not be cocky. They should be complacent. The incumbent usually wins in presidential elections, and so we're going to have to do some very real work organizing, changing the shape of the electorate, and running really smart campaigns on lessons in 2016 if we want to win. So it is a coin flip at best that Trump is defeated, and he's probably a slight favorite right now in 2020. So we have a lot of work to do. Dan, you've been very gracious with your time. Dan Pfeiffer's book, Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump, is available through Amazon or wherever you may buy books. Dan Pfeiffer, thank you for spending some time with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Author M.J. Rose has had a lifelong fascination with Lewis Comfort Tiffany, his artwork, and the man. And she finally got to write about him in her new historical mystery, Tiffany Blues. I recently had the utmost pleasure of touring Tiffany's artwork at the Metropolitan Museum of Art with M.J., where she told me the story behind her Tiffany obsession. When I was a little girl, my grandparents lived in Brooklyn in a, in a house on East 3rd Street that they had bought um, in 1920s, or in 19, actually the 19-teens. And there was a Tiffany window in that house, a little one of roses. And I was just fascinated by the way the light played when I was really little. And I would sit on the floor and chase the light. And my mother really loved my interest in art. She was a photographer. My grandmother was an artist. So she was very, um, she did a lot to inspire me and make sure that I developed that interest in art. So she started taking me around New York to see all the Tiffany windows that we could find. And I just became, I just fell in love with stained glass and all other kinds of art. And I lived across the street from here, so we were always here. My mother didn't like the playground, so instead of the playground, she would bring me here. I was always in love with the windows, and that window in particular. It's the sad story of my life, is that when my grandparents sold that house in the 1960s, Tiffany was out of favor, and nobody wanted that, and so it was sold with the house. And the house, by then, the neighborhood had really, it was in Brooklyn, but it had become like a really bad neighborhood. So somebody inherited this window that now is worth tens of thousands of dollars, if it even survived. We don't even know if it survived. I have from the house a doorknob, an Art Nouveau doorknob, that somehow my mother, or my, I guess my grandfather, when they moved out, took this one thing, this beautiful Art Nouveau doorknob, and gave it to my mother, and then somehow my mother gave it to me. And so wherever I move, I always remove one of the sets of doorknobs and put this one in. And I always live in fear that I'm going to forget and leave it in some house, like they left the Tiffany window. So then my interest in the house in Laurelton was that when they, when they moved this here and installed it, my mother and I came to the exhibit and they had a book about the exhibit and I bought the book and read about Laurelton and it stuck in my head that this house had burned down in 1957, had been the largest fire they'd ever seen on Long Island and that nobody knew why the fire had started. 
and that was one of those things that just sticks in a writer's head for years and years and years. And then there was another thing that happened where I was thinking of doing an anthology with a bunch of authors called Tiffany Blues because I love the name and it was going to be about the jazz, it was going to be the day before the crash in 1929 asking each author to write a short story about something that had happened in Tiffany's on 57th Street that day. I'm not even sure it was on 57th Street in 1929 but that was going to be the idea. And then when I really looked into what it was going to take to do an anthology, it was like, I can't, I don't have time to do this. So the name stuck in my head. And then the two things kind of melded together. And one, and one day there was just like, oh, a novel called Tiffany Blues about Laurelton Hall. So that's how this all sort of happened. It's been cooking and kicking around in your head for a while. Yeah, probably since I'm like, I don't exactly remember what year they installed this. Um, oh, I guess they... 78. So it's been kicking around and it started in the in 78. <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about the impact and the influence that Tiffany has had on you pretty much your entire life. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the book itself? We haven't really spoken about that. Oh, sure. So um, Tiffany Blues is a story of Jemmy Bell, who's a 24-year-old artist who is chosen by Lewis Comfort Tiffany and his group of advisors to come to Laurelton Hall one summer. And Laurelton Hall during the summers from 1918 until 19, until World War II was an artist colony. And there were two sessions. Each session was 12 to 14 artists who were invited to Laurelton Hall, paid a small stipend, and had um, a dormitory that they could live in. And, Cartier, uh, Cartier, sorry, wrong jeweler. <laughs> Tiffany, Tiffany invited them to come and study nature and draw, paint, sculpt, photography, stained glass, whatever art there was their art, to engage with that art and nature. There was no figure drawing, there was no models. The only rule was nothing human. It all had to be their art and nature combined. So Jenny's invited and she goes that summer and she has a very storied past and a huge tragedy that happened to her when she was a young girl of 16 and she's buried that and hidden it away and she thinks that she's managed to keep that hidden but when she comes to Laurelton Hall she sort of comes face to face with people who know too much about her past who want to expose her. And the story is what happens to Jenny and her past and the people around her and how she comes to terms with that. And Tiffany really believed that there was beauty in everything and that beauty came through the cracks, even if something broken. And that's really how I saw Jenny, that she was broken and beautiful and she had to learn that there were beautiful things that she could bring forth even though she'd been harmed and she had done bad things and she had to come into her own and accept who she was and still find the beauty and be okay with that. We're talking about beauty and and that seems to be a central thing running through the book. What is beautiful, what's not? How do you define beauty? That's a really hard question. I think it's so personal. Um, I think so quote a cliche Um, I think beauty really is in the eye of the beholder I think what somebody sees that they think is beautiful isn't necessarily what anybody else thinks and there's another theme in the book is what Keats said the truth is beauty and beauty truth and that's another thing that I think a lot about in the book 
is beauty really truth and is truth really beauty and I don't always think that it is I think that one of the things that Jenny has the hardest time accepting and dealing with is learning how to cope with the truth of what happened to her and, and the th deceptions that she's propagated. I have to tell you, this has been a real treat. I mean, no one else will get the chance to walk through the museum <laughs> with you and with all your knowledge. So thank oh, you thank so you much. Thank you so much. That's so nice of you to say. I know what you're thinking. I really want to go to the Met right now to see those windows. Well, we've got you covered. We've posted a video of my tour with MJ along with her narration under the Author Talks playlist at youtube.com slash WCBS 880. We'll also tweet out a link from at WCBS 880 books. And while you're there on our YouTube page, get lost in our other author interviews. When you think of preemie babies and incubators, I bet a Coney Island sideshow isn't the first thing that comes to mind. But what if I told you a man with a mysterious past was able to save thousands of babies during the 40 years he exhibited on the boardwalks in Brooklyn and Atlantic City? A strange but true story is the subject of the new book, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies. I spoke with author Don Raffle. This is a crazy story. It's one of those... You wouldn't believe it were true unless you actually told me it was true. So why don't you first tell us how you stumbled upon it? I originally was doing a little research about the Chicago World's Fair in 1933, and I saw this photograph out on the midway of this sideshow that said live babies in incubators and big crowd around it. And I thought, this is the weirdest thing. Uh, and then I learned that this same doctor had an exhibit at Coney Island for 40 years. And I thought, this is just so odd. I really want to get to the bottom of this story. And so that led you on this long and winding road to find out just who Martin Coney was. And it wasn't easy, was it? It was very difficult. And I discovered there was a group of leading neonatologists um, starting as early as the 1950s who were trying to get to the bottom of who it was. Um, he had very, very carefully constructed European credentials. Um, that he was educated in Leipzig and Berlin, that he was the protege of a world-famous French doctor, that he exhibited in Berlin and London, and then he came to this country. Um, and all of it was fabricated. The truth was that he came here when he was 18 years old. But astonishingly, he really did know how to save these babies, and he did pick up the same protocol that was being used in Paris at that time. It's just that he didn't have the credential. And that's just one of the crazy facts. I mean, he he had no medical training, yet he was able to figure out how to save the most vulnerable babies. But even on top of that, it would be years before hospitals realized they were doing it wrong. Um, yes, it was astonishing. Um, and I think part of it is that very early on, hospitals did try incubators. Some of them did. Um, but equipment is only as good as the people using it. So if you don't have the trained personnel to use it, if you don't have enough nurses per patient, if you can't keep the hospital really clean, then you're not going to see good results. And so they looked at it and they thought, well, this isn't really working anyway. And so they mostly abandoned the use of incubators. Um, and it was only Cooney who was really spending the money to have these highly, highly trained nurses there 24-7 with a very low um, patient-to-nurse ratio, um, immaculate premises, and he was able to save 85 to 90 percent of his patients. So how many babies did he save? 
So over the course of his career, it was something like 6,500 to 7,000 babies. Wow, that that's mind boggling. And also you mentioned, you know, he really spared no cost when it came to all the World's Fair exhibitions, the, the quality of care for the babies, but he never charged the parents. That's right. So um, he was really just an extravagant man in general. And so he would he would buy absolutely the best of everything in terms of care for the babies. He was constantly whining and dining physicians because he was trying to get them to come around to his point of view. And he made enough money off the gate that he didn't have to charge the parents. Now, some of the parents were very wealthy because you could have been a millionaire, but you couldn't have bought better care. And I will say, if the parents wanted to give him a donation, he wouldn't turn them down. So he was getting money some, that way as well. So explain to us a little bit, too. I mean, I don't think most people think as tiny babies, as people who should be in a freak show. What was the thinking at that time? Well, I think there were people who were very conflicted about it. Um, there were people who were horrified by it. Um, at one point, there was an effort to shut him down in New York, but there was not a choice in most cases between a sideshow and an ideal situation. It was a choice between a sideshow and having these babies die. So, uh, you know, over time, doctors, uh, obstetricians were sending their very premature patients to the sideshow. And I think yeah, they did feel uncomfortable with the spectacle of it. It kind of made them cringe. But on the other hand, they also understood that the only chance for these children to have a shot at life was to go to the sideshow. And you point out in your book quite early on that saving a two-pound person was a neater trick than swallowing a dagger or eating a flame. Uh, yeah. So most people had no idea that a child that small could even be saved. And partly he was trying to show the public that, yes, they can be saved and, yes, they can grow up to have happy, productive lives. Um, but people would, you know, early on he had a problem with people poking their fingers into the incubator because they thought these babies must be wax. They can't be real. And and during the course of your research, you actually met and spoke with some of the surviving Cooney babies. What did you yes, learn from I them? Did. Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, the oldest one I spoke to was 95 when I talked to her. Um, she was born in 1920, weighing two pounds, and the obstetrician told her parents she has no chance to live. She will not survive one day. You know, and the father was begging the doctor, Aren't, isn't there anything you can do? Don't you have machines? And the, the doctor was saying, well, we don't have those here, and it wouldn't matter anyway because this is a hopeless case. So this guy picks up a two-pound baby, wraps her in a towel, gets a taxi cab to Coney Island. Um, and this woman was 95 years old when I spoke to her. Um, her name was Lucille Horn. She passed away at the age of 96. Um, and all of the women I spoke to had a similar story of just this was their chance to live. And they all lived well past what anybody thought that they would survive to. Oh, and many of these people lived very long, happy lives. I also heard, you know, stories of people who, unfortunately, I just missed them, but they lived into their 80s and 90s. And what's interesting, too, is in your talking to them, the fact that they that they were these sideshow babies it was something some of their parents w were embarrassed about. Well, yeah. I mean, if you could imagine, first of all, the trauma of having a baby that was maybe two pounds, and this was back in the 20s or the 30s, um, the terror these parents felt, the fear, the grief, and then you're told 
the only hope for your child is now your baby's going to go to a sideshow on Coney Island and people are going to pay to look. You know, um, so, yeah, I think some of them felt very um, ashamed and embarrassed and at the same time incredibly grateful because they knew their child was getting a chance and in almost every case that child lived. After writing this book, you probably know Dr. Cooney better than anyone currently living. Would would you say he suffered from a savior complex or was this just a guy who had an enormously big heart? I think he had an enormously big heart. And, you know, I think he's still mysterious even after all this time. Um, he was an infinitely fascinating person to me. But I think he genuinely loved these children, and he was just a guy who loved life. He loved being out on the midway. He loved talking to people. He loved whining and dining doctors. Um, And he just, you know, he also, in 1937, he was quietly slipping Jews out of Germany when he could. He just was somebody who loved life, and he, he really genuinely wanted to help. His story has been mostly unknown. I mean, there are there've been people in the field of neonatology who've tried to track him down before you came along. Has he ever really gotten his due for for what he did for all these babies? I don't think he has gotten his due, and that's one of the things I hope to do with this book is to give him his due. And you know, I think part of it is um medical history and peer-reviewed journals are, you know, written by people who have to pass a committee and you know, maybe this is a PhD thesis or there's you have institutional affiliations and you have to be a little bit careful about what you're going to say. And it's kind of risky to say, oh, you know, our profession really owes its foundations to this guy who was a showman at Coney Island. It really is crazy. And I could see why some people might want to keep that hidden and swept under the rug. You know, it's strange and it still makes you kind of cringe when you think about, you know, just People paying to gawk at these babies. And there were people who would come every week like this was reality TV show. You know, um, they would have a favorite baby for a season and they'd go to look at that baby all season. And then maybe that baby would go home and they'd pick another baby they were rooting for. I think you totally hit the nail on the head. It was reality TV before TV. Yeah. Well, we've been talking with Dawn Raffle, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney. Our mysterious European showman saved thousands of American babies. This really is quite a fascinating read. I hope everyone runs out there and picks it up because I don't think, unless you read it and you you see all the facts that you've amassed, you would never believe it. Thank you so much. Thank you. All the world loves a baby. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And that's our podcast for this week. We're taking a week or two off to do some traveling. I just have to figure out which books to pack. While I try to decide, you should check out those videos I mentioned earlier at youtube.com slash WCBS 880. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. And if you have a reading suggestion for me, email me at books at entercom.com. 